Morning, Calvary. Apparently there's a lot of enthusiasm about bright lights in the room. I'm a little timid. I think people might start noticing my receding hairline. So, But I'm excited because the lights let you see your Bibles. And so if you have your Bibles, grab it. We're going back to the Gospel of Luke. We are nearing its end. We have been journeying through the Gospel of Luke, which is a historical document that put together all of these eyewitnesses' accounts of all the things that Jesus said and did in his death and in his resurrection. And we've been looking at the last six days of Jesus' life, recorded from Luke 19 to the end of the book. And we're, we're, we're celebrating Palm Sunday this morning when, when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem. And if you remember, back in Luke chapter 9, there was a, a shift in focus that Jesus then set his face the mission towards Jerusalem, that there was something to be accomplished in Jerusalem, and he drove the mission forward. Even when people tried to create opposition for him, his disciples themselves said, don't go to Jerusalem, you, you could die there. And he says, no, the mission is to Jerusalem. And on Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry is Jesus coming into Jerusalem. He has set his face and his mission towards Jerusalem for some time now, and he has finally arrived. And we looked at that six weeks ago. Six weeks ago, we were in chapter 19, and we were looking at his arrival and some parables that he told. And, and the story that was read today was from Luke 19 that Silas did, which does a phenomenal job reading. I hope to read that, that well someday. <laughs> but here's Jesus coming in, and, and the symbolism is just rich. And it's just packed with Old Testament symbolism so that you would not miss who Jesus really is. That's the whole point. So that people would recognize who Jesus is and in recognizing him would receive him into their life. That's the whole point. To recognize Jesus so that you would receive him as he truly is into your life. Now, there are a lot of people in this room that would say, I've received Jesus. I mean, we get really excited about Jesus in this room. We think that he is phenomenal, awesome, worth following. That's what a disciple is, someone who follows Jesus. And so there are many people, most perhaps in this room, that say, I follow Jesus. And the question that the scriptures are constantly trying to challenge us with is, which Jesus do you follow? Like the Jesus of our own imaginations that affirm our own identities and affirm our own ambitions and affirm what we want out of life and what we think or how we think life should go? Or have we followed the authentic, real Jesus as he has presented himself? And for all the people in the room that say, I follow Jesus, are you following the real, authentic Jesus? And today I just want that question to be in your mind as Jesus is put on trial. So he comes in on Palm Sunday, this triumphal entry, and he comes in riding a colt. And the, and the whole text is awesome. It's like there's a spy novel kind of aspect to it. Jesus has like made all these plans and preparations, and he tells his disciples, like, go into town and, and grab this donkey and a colt and bring it back to me. And if the owner of the colt asks, like, you just give him this sign, the Lord needs it. You know, it's like... <laughs> It's like Star Wars. I don't know. It's like, the Lord needs it. Oh, wait, the Lord needs it. But it's probably that Jesus has made preparations for this because he's sought after. They want to arrest him and put him to death. And everything is happening according to Jesus' timeline. Jesus is in control. And so he sends his disciples in, and they put him on this donkey, and he rides in, and they're just screaming out, Hosanna. 
which is, is just a word that means God save us. Our, our translators could have just translated it. Save us, God. Save us, Jesus. That's what it means. Save us. And it's a quotation from Psalm 118, a psalm that would be read at the Passover weeks of God sending his salvation to his people. And so his people are saying, save us. And, and the text says that there's a great multitude of followers, those who have seen his great works, and are joining in this chorus. But not everybody recognizes Jesus as king. You see, you're not supposed to miss it. He comes riding in on a donkey. Now, we, sometimes you hear this and you say, well, he comes in riding as a donkey because he's poor and he can't afford a horse. And it's, it's cool to ride on a horse. If Jesus could ride on a horse, he would have ridden on a horse, but that's not true. See, it's rich in its symbolism of what Jesus is trying to communicate. See, King David rode on a donkey. Solomon, his son, at his inauguration, to recognize him as the rightful, legitimate king of Israel was set on David's donkey. There's a prophecy in Zechariah, this is Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, of the coming king to anticipate, says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. See, there's a, there's a prophetic word that's spoken about this moment that you'll recognize your king riding in on a donkey. And not only is that being communicated, that Jesus should be recognized as the rightful, legitimate king, but more than that, how he comes is he comes in peace. See, when, when kings would enter a city on a horse, it would indicate a time of war. It would, be, it would be an indictment on that city that this king intends to bring war there. When a king comes in on a donkey, he's like an ambassador of peace. And so Jesus arrives on this donkey, rich in Old Testament symbolism. Guy, Do you get it? Recognize this. It's your king. And your king comes to you. You receive your king who brings you what? War? Or peace, it's peace, which fulfills all the way back in the beginning of Luke. If you remember this, Luke chapter 2, verse 14, when the angels are talking to the shepherds, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth amongst men and women with whom he's pleased. Right? He's, he's come to bring his peace. King Jesus comes to bring peace. That's what's happening. But not everybody recognizes him as king or is willing to receive him. As this kind of king. What kind of Messiah do people really want Jesus to be? They want him to be the rebel king. Who will come in and by sword remove Rome from its occupation. By force reestablish the kingdom of Israel. To rule by might. And Jesus has been showing us that his kingdom is completely upside down from that. That he has a different mission in mind and how to accomplish it. And so he comes as the king promised in the Old Testament, bringing peace. And the religious leaders are upset. What did they say in that text? They said, tell your disciples to be quiet. Like rebuke them, Jesus. Tell them to shut their mouths. Now, it's interesting because throughout the entire gospel, when people are like want to seize Jesus and make him their king, Jesus won't let them. 
when they want to praise and worship him, when, when tell everybody that he's really the Christ, he says, shh, don't tell anybody. Don't let it out of the bag yet. And at this moment, it's like all gloves are off. Like, just let the world know. Like, if, if they stop singing, creation itself, who's groaning and longing to be restored, like, they would break out and start worshiping me. They would recognize me, and they would receive me. But the religious leaders will not. And so the last six weeks, we've been looking at Jesus' arrival and all the things that he was doing in Jerusalem. He went to the temple and his teachings and his miracles. And finally, the religious leaders are done with it. And last week, we looked at his Passover meal with his disciples on the evening he was betrayed. And Mark did a great job last week setting it up for when he was betrayed in the garden, handed over, and now he's on trial. Is he really the king? And will his people really receive him? To be their king, that we would be his subjects, that we would follow him and listen to him, giving him authority over our life. That's what's on, that's what's on trial here. And so if you have your Bibles, go to Luke chapter 23. The betrayal has happened. They've already put him on trial in front of the religious community. And they want to put him to death, but they don't have the authority of capital punishment. And so they have to let the Roman governor do that. And so they have to take some, they put some sort of plot together to bring false charges against Jesus so that the Roman governor would be willing to put him to death. So 23 verse 1. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. This is the whole religious community that just brought Jesus in front of them. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So the, the, the accusation against Jesus is he's an insurrectionist. He's causing trouble, and he's not letting people pay taxes to Caesar, which is absolutely against what Jesus said to do. Like, give to Caesar what's Caesar, and to God what's God's. And so they're trying to bring false charges against him as one who's an insurrectionist and props himself up as a king. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, you have said so. Meaning, you have said so correctly. Yes, I am. What you've said is true. So there's Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? Like, Pilate's trying to figure this out. Are you really the king? And he's like, yep, you got it. Nailed it. A plus for you. Then Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. you got to pay attention to this. The innocence of Jesus is obvious. It's obvious. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. Now when, Par Herod, sorry, when Pilate hears that he's a Galilean, that's great because he's in the district of Herod. And so he sends him off for Herod to evaluate him. Herod has some fun with Jesus, mocks him also, beats on him, and then sends him back to Pilate because he's like, I don't find any fault in him. And so coming back to Pilate, we pick it up in verse 13. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. You see that? Like, Pilate's no fool. 
He evaluates him. If he was truly an insurrectionist, a rebel, he'd have him arrested. If he was claiming to be a king in opposition to him, he'd probably have him put to death. And here Pilate says, in my interrogation, I find no fault in him. Verse 15, neither did Herod. Like Herod found Jesus innocent, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. Like that's, Herod, that's Pilate's conclusion. Like Herod found him innocent. I find him innocent. There's no reason to put this Jesus to death. And so I'm going to punish him just so he knows how serious I am. And we're going to send him off. Verse 18. But they, they just refuse to recognize him as king. And are unwilling to receive him as king. But they all cried out together, away with this man and release us. Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection, started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? Like, like do you see who is like his counsel? Is, is Pilate. Like he's trying to release Jesus constantly. Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So, not because Jesus is found guilty, but because the governor has a protest an insurrectionist, a possible chaos going on at the time of Passover because he's concerned for his own skin and how this goes back to Rome, how it maybe it's a mark on his evaluation as governor, which may limit him from being elevated in ranks. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. He delivers him up to be crucified. Not because he's guilty, but because Pilate's a coward. Because the people are demanding to have Jesus crucified. And they're willing to publicly demand this in front of the governor. And Pilate gives Jesus over to them with resources to put Jesus to death. Now, do you see the insanity of all of this? Is they bring up false charges against Jesus. And what were the false charges? He's an insurrectionist. He's against Rome. And then there is this man named Barabbas. And we'll look at Barabbas for a moment. What is Barabbas actually guilty for? Being an insurrectionist. Causing trouble. And murder. Meaning, who arrested him? Rome did. So Rome sees him as an insurrectionist. He's probably killed someone who's a Roman. That's why he's in jail. And so he's probably in jail being ready to be put to death. And so you see the crowd saying, you have to put Jesus to death because he's an insurrectionist, which is false. But they're willing to receive back a known insurrectionist. What does that reveal to them? It reveals their hypocrisy. I want 
to you, for you to put away the Jesus I don't want. And I want you to give us Barabbas. And I don't care that he's an insurrectionist. I don't even care that he's a real murderer. Now, what's interesting about this story about Barabbas is, well, where did Barabbas come from, and why is Pilate willing to release Barabbas? Well, there are four Gospels, right? So there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And these are four historical documents that give eyewitness testimony of all that Jesus did. And they're from different vantage points, as you might say. And so you think of it this way. If there was an accident on a street, you watched a car accident happen. And perhaps you were on the south corner and the police came. You would give a report of everything that you saw. And they would also ask the people, the bystanders, who witnessed the, exa- the accident from the north corner. And they would give it a, a detailed account of everything they saw. And then perhaps they would go inside the building on the fourth story where someone was eating their lunch on the balcony who also witnessed the accident happen and get their report. And perhaps they would even ask the person in the car who was driving, who caused the accident, what happened? And so you'd have four witnesses of an accident. And do they have the same vantage point? No. So they would all fill in details, not in contradiction to one another, but they'd help fill in details of what happened from the south view, from the north view, from within the car, or even on the fourth story. This is what I saw happen. And I'm so thankful there's four Gospels. Now, they're not all exactly identical word for word, which, if they were would be super suspicious. It'd be super suspicious. You think collusion, they all got together and gave a story. But the fact that they give their version of the story as a witness, it actually builds into the veracity and trustworthiness of the story. It's details without contradiction. And so let's go to Matthew real quick. We haven't spent really any time in any of their Gospels this whole time. But in Matthew chapter 27... See, all four Gospels account for this. Matthew 27, verse 15, gives us a little bit more details about what's going on. It says, now at the feast, the governor, this is the feast of Passover, the time where they're at. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. So Rome is an occupying force in order to keep some sort of civility an act of benevolence to the people, Pilate would release, would pardon a criminal. They wanted released every single Passover. And so Pilate, who, what's his desire with Jesus? To release him. Pilate says, okay, what, how do I do this? Like, they want me to crucify Jesus. What do I do? I know what I'll do. I'm going to go in and find that insurrectionist, the murderer, and I'll put him out as an option. Do you want this Barabbas or do you want this Jesus? And it's perfect. It makes sense. They're going to say, uh, I don't want that Barabbas. He's an insurrectionist and murderer. He causes a lot of problems for us. I guess we'll take Jesus. But that's not what happens. And so this is the custom to release a prisoner, verse 16. And they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ. Now verse 18, I didn't throw up on there. It just says, for he knew that it was out of envy they had delivered him up. Like he gets what's going on. Pilate's no fool. So which one do you want, this Barabbas or this Jesus called Messiah? Now what's interesting is that this Barabbas is an insurrectionist. But he's an insurrectionist to who? Is to Rome. 
Like he's stirring up trouble to try to get rid of Rome. He's, he's willing to take up arms and pay, put people to death to get rid of Rome. And so who is he actually a hero of? The people. Of the zealots. Zealots are a group of Jewish people that want to take Rome by force. So probably one of their heroes. And so what ends up happening is the religious community has put Jesus up on trial. And when Pilate puts out this Barabbas and this Jesus, he really puts the community on trial. Who do you want to receive back into your life? Now what's interesting, there are, there are thousands of manuscripts of the early Gospels, thousands of them. Some of the early manuscripts have a, little, have a name attached to Barabbas that some of our English translations account for. So raise your hand if you have like an NIV translation in the room. All right, some NIV here. That's great. Biblical translations in English are wonderful. You should have a few of them. Because, here's why. Because English translations are trying to drive at what did, the original, what did the original authors intend in these texts. And so because the Bible wasn't written in English, Jesus didn't speak English, that may be news to you. The English translations are a bit very trying to drive towards the meaning. And so some translations are word-for-word -word translations, which make it a bit clumsy to read. Maybe you've had some of those. And some are thought-for-thought -thought translations, getting like ideas across. And so you need to look at a few translations to see what's going on. But looking at these early manuscripts, the NIV picks up on some of these manuscripts that Barabbas' name is actually Jesus Barabbas. You guys see that in your NIV? So if you look at Matthew 27, verse 15 and 16, it says that there was a notorious criminal, Jesus Barabbas. Bar just simply means of. It's the Aramaic way of of. So it's Jesus of, and Abbas is the father. So Abba, remember Jesus taught us to pray to our father, Abba. So it's Jesus Bar Abba, of father. Just like Simon Bar Jonah, of Jonah. Or you say Jesus of Joseph or Mary, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, you don't have to believe that that's the original manuscript to get the point across. But just imagine this. That essentially, Pilate has put up in front of the people two Jesuses. Jesus is a very common name. It's like Joe, Tom, Will. He says, which Jesus do you want released back into your life? This Jesus... Barabbas, who's a notorious insurrectionist against the very people that you hate and is willing to strap on arms and put to death his enemies? Or do you want this Jesus who calls himself Messiah, who is letting his enemies put him to death? Which one do you want released back to you? And he puts the community on trial. Let me ask you that. Which Jesus do you really want in your life? Just think about this for a second. Give me the Jesus who's willing in his own might, in his own strength, and to arm himself to kill my enemies. I kind of want that Jesus. Or do you want this Jesus who's willing to have his enemies put him to death? It's like this looks like a weak Jesus, doesn't it? 
Doesn't this look like a Jesus who's failed the mission? Like, give me big, bad Jesus. And so what Jesus teaches us is that his kingdom is radically different than the kingdom of the world. The world sends their kings into cities on horses declaring war. Jesus comes as an ambassador of peace on a donkey, giving his life up for his enemies, for you and for me. This is what Paul says in Romans 5. It's like, I mean, you can imagine someone giving up their life like a mom or a dad for their children, for a righteous person. But God, who's rich in love towards us, while we were still, what, enemies, Christ came and died for us. And so Jesus shows that the kingdom wins by losing. What looks like a loss and weakness, Jesus wins. Jesus fundamentally conquers death and sin and rises again three days later as he planned to do. And so the two Jesuses on trial to recognize and be willing to receive are fundamentally different. I put it this way. Barabbas destroys his enemies. Jesus destroys what makes us enemies. You see the difference? And there are so many people who just want Jesus Barabbas. Like, kill my enemies. Come on, God, just destroy them. Jesus says, but, but you're an enemy. And I've come to give my life for you. And so I'm going to come and destroy the very thing that makes people enemies. That makes you enemies to God. And maybe enemies with one another. All the ways in which you have hurt one another, offended one another, abused one another. I'm going to die for those sins so that you might be forgiven and restored back into community and back with God. Jesus wins by losing. But I think a worthy Easter meditation is, do you really want that Jesus in your life? Because he set a different example than Barabbas. Peter picks up on this. This is 1 Peter chapter 2, looking at the unjust suffering of Jesus. Verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. So those who say, I, I recognize that Jesus is the king and I receive into my life the authentic, real Jesus. Well, he set an example for us. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's to the Father. So even though that Jesus is on trial and it's, it's a total scam, all of these accusations are false. He continued to entrust himself to the Father. What do we know about that? God says, don't repay vengeance for vengeance, evil for evil. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Trust the God of the universe who sees it all. He will act. Let him be your judge. Jesus let him be his judge. 
And so he says, this is the example. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, which is another word for the cross. Whose sins did he bear? His own? No, ours. Our sins on the tree, that we might die to sin, be dead to that kind of life, evil for evil, vengeance, and to live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. How, are, how is anyone healed? Like truly healed is by the work of Jesus Christ. For we were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. That's what Peter says. We we were the ones guilty, deserving of the cross. How many crosses were on Calvary that day? This is three. We know three. Three three crosses, and Jesus was in the middle, and two criminals on his left and right. Can you just imagine for a second? It's a biblical imagination, but can you imagine who was that third cross intended for? It was Barabbas. And so Jesus stepped on Barabbas' cross. That really, that, that third cross was intended for you and for me. And God, rich in his grace and mercy, stepped on the cross that, that we should have been on. Barabbas is the first taste of what it looks like that God would be his substitute. Donald Barnhouse just simply puts it this way when looking at this story. Barabbas was the only man in the world who could say that Jesus Christ took his physical place. But I can say that Jesus Christ took my spiritual place. For it was I who deserved to die. It was I who deserved the wrath of God that should be poured out on me. I deserved the eternal punishment, being in the lake of fire. He was delivered up for my offenses. He was handed over to judgment because of my sin. This is why we speak of the substitutionary atonement, that that Jesus took our place. Christ was my substitute. He was satisfying the debt of divine justice and holiness. This is why I say that Christianity can be expressed in the three phrases. I deserve hell. Jesus took my hell. There is nothing left for me but heaven. That's all that's left for those who belong to Christ is his reward, is his life. And so Jesus comes into Jerusalem on mission to be recognized and received as the rightful, true king of the world. And for all those who would receive him, he would give them eternal life. The question is, Are we willing to receive him as he truly is? The one who is willing to descend down to find victory over sin and death. Not being willing to destroy his enemies, but to destroy the very thing that makes us enemies. I don't have all the answers for you today. I hear three things go apply to your life. This is just a worthy meditation of us on trial. What Jesus do you want to receive into your life? What Jesus are you following? And if our example is Jesus, how are we treating our enemies? How we treat our enemies? It's a worthy thought this week as we look forward to resurrection. Let's pray. Father, your beauty and power, and the word majesty is just, it's just incredible. 
your humility to come and, and to take our place and to die the death that we deserved is unthinkable. And so, Father, I just pray that you would prepare us with this text to journey through Holy Week as we meditate on the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Father, I pray that this would be in our minds as we meet people in the world that treat us unfairly. May we respond in Christ-like manner. Father, I pray that you would prepare our hearts to remember your death this Friday and to celebrate your resurrection on Sunday. Father, we pray that these sorts of texts would awaken faith in many. For those who have never received you as their king, Lord, I pray that they would recognize and receive you as King Jesus in their life today. And that they would know that they have no fear of death anymore, for you have conquered it. You have forgiven their sins. And so, Lord, we just ask that you would do a work that only you can do in every person in this room this week. To let your word speak loudest in our lives, in our marriages, in our family, in our parenting, in our singleness. Father, we just ask that you would be our king and that we would faithfully follow. In your name we pray. Amen.